Good morning, children. Thank you guys for coming. It was a blessing, as I said earlier, to um, watch you worship the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you guys all come on up and take a seat either on the floor or on the bench. Okay, you can sit on the floor, you can sit on the bench, whichever works for you. Now, I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand back here. You guys need to step sit back a little bit, though. Okay, I'm going to stand back here for the next four Sundays. Okay, and the reason I'm going to do that, I'm going to talk to you about this. Okay, this morning. We're just going to talk about it. Next, starting next week, we're actually going to start lighting candles. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's, yeah I, was, I was there. Like next week is when we start lighting the candles. Because see, today on the Christian calendar, today is the last Sunday of the Christian calendar. It's called Christ the King Sunday. Have you ever heard that before? No. Christ the King. Who is Christ the King? Jesus. Jesus. Next Sunday is the first of the four Sundays of Advent. And that's when we light our Advent candles. Normally, we would have a wreath. Remember, in the past, we've had like a wreath with goblets and they were purple and pink candles. And we would light those up and they had the different words. Well, this year, we're doing it slightly differently. And the reason we're doing it differently is because... On Christmas Eve, we have a regular morning worship service. And then less than 12 hours later, actually about five hours later, we have to be all set for the Christmas Eve service. And it was just not going to be possible. So what we've done is we actually have set up for the Christmas Eve service now. Okay. And there's lots of candles that are going to be lit. But let me explain to you. These tables are a little bit wobbly. And there's a lot of glass up here. And so we've stabilized it as best we can by putting uh, uh, sandbags down around the legs. And we put a barrier in front with wood so that and then other tables in front. So hopefully nothing's going to happen to this. But what that means is I need for you guys to stay over there. While I do what needs to be done up here. Normally when we do the Advent Sunday, we would gather around the wreath, but we're not going to do that this year. Okay. So I just wanted you to understand. Now, this is again, this is all for the next few weeks. We're not going to light any candles this morning. We're going to talk about Christ the King. So I said he was Christ the King. That's today, the Sunday. But you said that the King is Jesus. Jesus. How do we know he's the King? Do you even know what a king is? What is a king? A ruler? You mean 12 inches? No, they rule a kingdom. Adrian, what were you going to say? They're not like Pharaoh. Ah. Hmm. In my country, do I have a king in my country? What do I have in my country that rule, that rules or leads the country? Yes. Who is the, the, the guy, the person that's in charge of our country? The president. The president. Well, I know, but in the, in the, in the government, in the government of the, of the United States, we have a president. And the country that's north of the United States, that's Canada, do you know what their government leader is? He is called a prime minister. 
Do you know that there are prime ministers all around the world and there are presidents around the world and there are leaders around the world, but there are very few kings anymore. There's still a couple of kings, but not many and a couple of queens, but not many. So it's hard for us to, when we say Jesus is king to understand what king means. Cause like president, if, if you guys were to meet the president, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I mean, you got to go to Washington DC and go to the president's office. Now, how do you think the president would treat you? Do you think he would be nice to you? No. I think he would be nice. I think he'd smile and he'd stand up and he'd shake your hand and he would welcome you maybe to sit down in his office and he'd visit with you. He might even offer you something to drink. He would be very nice. But does he know anything about you? He doesn't know where you live. He doesn't know what your bedroom looks like. He doesn't know what your favorite color is. He's nice to you and he's a good leader, but he doesn't know you very well. That's what a president or a leader of a country is. But Jesus is different. Even though he's the leader of the government, Jesus, the, the, the government of the, of the Christian faith, Jesus knows each and every one of us personally. The Bible says he know he can see our minds. He can see our hearts. He can read our minds. Yes, sir. He can even see what's in the past. Now, let me ask you something else. Somebody who knows us, who runs things, but not the government, but somebody who runs things and they would know you a little better, maybe would be your boss or your teacher, right? Like if you went to school, you would have a teacher in public school. Or if you went to, to your work, like your mom and dad go to work, they have a boss. Like Miss Tanya's the boss at her place, right, Shane? And she has people that work for her. And so she has to be a good leader. And she has to know her people and care about her people and be kind to them. So being a king would kind of be being like a boss. But still, it's more than that. When Jesus, when we call Jesus our king, because Jesus is the leader of the church. And Jesus is the leader of all of the things that happen, even locally. And Jesus knows us really, really well. But even more than that... He's our friend and he loves you and he cares about you. And you know what else? Jesus, the king, died on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God, the father. That's pretty cool. You know what Jesus said? No person has greater love than if they'd be willing to die for somebody else. Jesus has the greatest love of everybody and he is our king and that's why we celebrate him today. I want to pray with you guys and then we're going to send you back to your class because remember starting today you guys are going to start practicing your Christmas play. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would bless these kids. Help them to come to understand that you are their king But it's more than just being the boss or being the president or being a ruler. You are the one that knows them and loves them and cares about them and does everything for them, even dying for us. Thank you, Father. Bless us now. Bless these kids in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys can head on back to your class. Thank you so, so much. Well, we have literally reached the end of a six-month journey. We have been going through the book of First Kings for the last 30, 28 weeks. And um, 
25 weeks, 26 weeks, something like that. And honestly, I was struggling all week long trying to figure out how am I going to make Christ the King Sunday a study about the death of a king. And it was really weird. And I don't know if you've ever seen television shows or other types of games Game shows that do this. And I honestly don't even know what they're called. I named this the chain of words game. Have you ever seen a chain of words game? Craig, bring up that first sermon slide, please. The one. There you go. It says wide. And then there's a blank and a blank and a blank and a blank and alarm. And this chain of words, you have to come up with the next word that goes with wide. And then the next word would go, this third word would go with the second word. Then the fourth word would go with the third word. Then the fifth word would go with the fourth word. And then the last word would go. So it's like a, it's like following a a thread through, but it's, it's linking the words. Show the answer. Show the answer. So wide to alarm, wide open, open sesame, sesame street, street car. Car alarm. Got it? So this is the chain of words game. Now, I made that name up. If I tried online to look, I couldn't find any place that named the game. If you guys find out uh, what that name is, I would appreciate it if you'd let me know so that I don't look stupid in the world. But anyway, seriously, if you find any place that gives the name of this game, let me know, please. Because uh, I, I wanted to look more up, but I couldn't. That, but this was really one that I found online. Wide open. Open Sesame, Sesame Street, Car Alarm. Now, using that chain of words game, how can I make a connection? Bring up the next slide, Craig. How can I bring a connection between the death of King Saul and today being Christ the King Sunday? What words, what chain of words would tell the story and bring us to the point of Christ the King Sunday. Now we know, we know, go ahead and bring up the next slide, Craig. We know why King Saul was rejected. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 and 14 tell us, Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. We've studied this over the last six months. I don't want to go back into it. We don't need to go back into it. We've already done that. So Saul's death was because of a breach of faith. Saul's death was because Saul did not have a close, intimate relationship with God. Saul depended on Saul. Saul did not depend on God. So if I were to force you to come up with the next logical word in the chain with no clue. Bring up the next slide, Craig. Would that be a good logical word? King Saul, King David, they're in relationship with each other. Are they not in this story? As we've been looking at it, King Saul, King David, but also King Saul depended on King Saul. Who did King David depend on? So there's, there's even a, a, a correlation there. Not, it's almost like an, it's almost like an opposites. But there is that. Bring up the the slide about the covenant with David. 
If you look in the Bible, there are three passages where God clearly says, I am establishing a covenant with David. They are in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29. And what that is, is seven, the 1 through 17 is God talking to David, and then 18 through 29 is David's response to God. So it's all one setting. And then finally, 89, Psalms 89, verses 19 through 37. I want to quickly read through these. Um, I may summarize some of it rather than reading through all of it. We'll see. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. Now, king is King David at this point. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, and the Lord, for the Lord is with you. But that very same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded? To shepherd my people Israel. Did I ever say to any of them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture. From following sheep. That you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies. From before you. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest. From all your enemies. Craig, bring up the next slide. At this point in all of that statement, this is Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. Look at what God says to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He is not talking about a physical structure. God, through the prophet, Nathan is saying to David, I will make you a legacy. Your children, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren for all time will be on the throne over the people of God. And then it continues. And he says, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. I'll raise you up and your offspring after you, blah, 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 blah. And then it says here, verse 14, it says, I'll be a father to your sons and they shall be to me like my own son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away from before you. Bring up the next one. This is now verse 16. This is still God speaking through the prophet to David. And your house, again, not the physical structure, David's line, David's progeny, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Wow. God, through the prophet, said, I am going to establish your house forever. Even if one of your sons sins against me, I'm not going to pull this promise out from underneath them like I did with Saul. I'm telling you, I'll discipline them. There will be penalty. But I will not revoke this covenant that I'm making with you, David. Powerful, powerful promise made from God Almighty. David responds. Bring up the next slide, please. David's prayer of gratitude, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Verse 18 through 29, David went in and sat before the Lord. He went into the tabernacle, literally where the altar was. I mean, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he said, now he didn't actually see it because there's a curtain. He couldn't get in there, but he could go sit in the presence of God. And he sat before the Lord and he said to him, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet... This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And and, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things. By driving out before your people. Whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. A nation and its gods. And you. You established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, oh, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. So that it may continue forever before you. 
For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Bring up the next slide, Craig. Psalm 89 was not written by David. It was written by one of the other uh, Levites who wrote Psalms. But the, the last, this section of the Psalm talks about this promise that God made to David about the establishment of his house forever. Psalm 89 Verses 19 through 37 says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and you said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfastness, love, steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love will keep him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne As the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law. And do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes. And do not keep my commands. Then I will punish their transgression with the rod. And their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him. My steadfast love. Or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. Or alter the word. That went forth from my lips. Once for all. I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Can you imagine if you were David... And those words were spoken over you, knowing the character of God, that God is loving and faithful and does not lie. And God declares, I am going to bless your socks off. I'm going to bless you and your kids and your kids, kids. There will never be an end to what I will do for your family. And David goes in before God. He's like, am I that you would say these things to me but you did you did and he owned that promise he, he, he actually entered into the covenant with God and then another writer writes about it because it became part of their culture The people of God, the people of Israel knew this intimate promise that came from God to David. And it carried down from generation to generation to generation that God had spoken a word to David that he would establish the the dynasty of David forever. 
He did say if there was sin, then there's a problem. Now, as I was going through this chain of words, I was trying to think of what would be the next logical word in the chain. Craig, bring this next one up. This is the one I came up with. Covenant of salt. Has anyone ever heard that verse, that phrase before? Covenant of salt. It's biblical. Bring up the next slide, please. There are only three places in the entire Bible that this phrase is actually used. It, it's, it's almost directly translated out of the Hebrew into English, covenant of salt. So turn first to Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5. This is what it says. Craig, bring that slide up. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. So the Bible, the writer of Chronicles, uses this phrase covenant of salt to describe this faithful promise of God to David and his house. That's the first time that it appears in the Bible. Bring up the next slide, Craig. Numbers 18. No, bring it back. Numbers 18. It says all the holy contributions. There it is. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. This is not a promise being made to David. Look at where it came from. It came out of numbers. This is a promise that when God was setting up the sacrificial system, God said to all of the nation of Israel, every single tribe is going to get an allotment of land, except for the Levites. I will be the Levites inheritance. You, the rest of you, as you are growing your grain and as you are raising your flocks and as you are raising your herds, you will bring the best as a sacrifice of offering to me, God. And that will be given to the Levites for them to sustain their families. But guess what? The Levites were also under the law and they had to do a tithe of the tithe. So the best of the entire nation of Israel, the first fruits, the best of the best came to the Levites. And then they had to take the best of the best of the best and give it to Aaron and his family, the high priest. And again, this promise is being made to Aaron and his sons that God's offering the best of the best, a tithe of the best of the best, which means the best of the best of the best, comes to you to support your family. Now, that seems a little unfair. Think about it, folks. Aaron and his family carried the weight of being the priests for the entire nation. They were the ones that had to, under the threat of death, go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer the atonement sacrifice. They were the ones who had no land, no houses, nothing for that they could call their own. They only got what God gave them, and God gave them the best. Now, it says here, it's a covenant of salt. 
Again, this phrase, it's only twice in the Bible. Remember I said only twice in the Bible? I told you just a minute ago it was three times in the Bible. Bring up the next slide. Leviticus chapter 2 is what gives the rules about the sacrifices. Okay, so in the rules of the sacrifices, it says you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. Now, it's, I didn't put it in this quote, but there was also a, a requirement that they put salt with the meat offerings as well. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. This is not the covenant of salt in the same way that the other two. I mean, the phrase itself, covenant of salt, but it is still the only other place in the Bible where the words covenant of salt are in Hebrew and then translated into English. And what this is saying is that every time an Israelite would come and bring an offering to God, whether it was grain or whether it was meat, they had to put salt with it. That was, the, that was the law. That was the requirement. And it became part of their culture to talk about a covenant of salt. Well, covenant is a, co- is a promise between two parties. You cannot engage in this covenant unless both parties are participating. God has demanded that you provide salt when you offer your sacrifice. And unless you provide the salt, your sacrifice is not, is not accepted by God. So, what is a covenant of salt. Bring up the next slide. The one that says Merrill. Yeah, Eugene H. Merrill. A covenant of salt is a metaphor to speak of durability. As salt keeps its flavor, so the Lord's covenant will forever be in force. Do you hear that? God put it into the law, the book of the law, that if you want to have right relationship with me, you don't just offer sacrifice however you choose. You do it my way. And my way is the best of the best sprinkled with salt. And it is understood. There is no defining statement in the Bible. But it is understood by scholars that this idea of the covenant of salt is durability and flavoring and this idea of forever in the promises of God. Now, let me read to you um, another quote. Bring the, the next quote up. This is by a guy named Milton S. Terry. I only gave you part of it. I'm going to read you the entire quote. The meat offering was a standing memorial of God's covenant with man. It could never be lawfully offered without salt. Salt, the symbol of perpetuity. Salt, the symbol of incorruptibility, became therefore proverbially associated with the notion in the nation of Israel of a sacred and inviolable covenant. Hence, A covenant of salt is equivalent to a holy and inviolable covenant. It's not just durable or perpetual. It has to do with God. It is holy. 
And it is never to be violated. So when God offered David a covenant of salt, it is holy, it is inviolable, it is perpetual, it is durable. And it is reserved for very specific purposes. And it is the best of the best of the best. Okay. Next word in this chain. Bring that one up, Craig. This is interesting. I shared with Elsa yesterday. As I was preparing my sermon this week and reflecting, I was looking at a lot of different sources this guy's name kept coming up and I was like, God, what does that have to do with the death of Saul? So I kept reading and I kept praying and I kept reading and I kept praying. Does anybody know who Josiah was? Don't bring it up yet, Craig. Does anybody know who Josiah was? He was a good king. He was a good king. What's unique about him? Does anybody know how old he was when he became king? He was eight years old. Bring up the next slide, Craig. He was the boy who became king. His story is found in 2 Kings chapter 21 and 22 and 23. Don't bring up those slides yet. King Josiah was one of the last kings of Judah. Now, to to give you a little bit of reference, when King David died, his son Solomon took over and became king. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And Rehoboam was confronted by the ten tribes, the northern tribes of Israel. And they said, while your father Solomon was alive, he put us to task. He was a hard taskmaster. And if you will lighten up on us, we will serve you and we will honor you as our king. And there was some rabble rousers and a guy specifically named Jeroboam. I think that was his name, Jeroboam. And he incited the people to say, nah. And so they come back to them. No, no, excuse me. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Rehoboam went to his advisors, which were his buddies. First, he went to the older guys that advised Solomon. And then they said, listen to these people. They're going to align themselves with you. This is good. And then Rehoboam listened to his buddies and they said, You tell those people that your little finger's thicker than your daddy's waist. You tell them that if they don't fall into line and follow you, you're going to make their life miserable. Stupid Rehoboam did that. And he went and told these people, ah, you think you're, you, you just look, look at this. That's how bad it's going to be for you. And they went, really? See ya. And ten tribes walked out of the nation. Civil war happened, basically. So now the northern tribes are their own country and they set up their own place of worship, their own stuff, and all that's left is Judah and Benjamin. That's it. Now, um, king after king, there's, there's, you, you look through the story, there's the kings of Israel, that's the northern tribes, and there's the kings of Judah, that's the southern tribes. The kings of Judah are the descendants of David. Okay? The kings of the northern tribes are not descendants of David. The kings of Judah are the descendants of David. So now let's look at this. King Josiah was one of the last kings of Judah just prior to the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile is when Israel ceased to be a nation, basically. 
ceased to be a self-governing nation uh, for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Two Two of Josiah's sons followed him as king, two brothers. One was taken out after just a few months, then the other one became king. Then when he died, his son went in. So it was just two sons and a grandson that followed Josiah. So it's basically the, nearing the end of the, of the line of kings. So bring up 19... No, just leave that there, I think. That's right. I'll just read it to you. Second Kings 21, verses 19 through 24 says, There was this guy named Ammon who was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And then what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he followed the, the, the leading of his father, Manasseh. He walked in the way that his father walked. He served other idols. He didn't serve God. He abandoned the Lord. And the servants of Ammonon, I mean, you see, Ammon conspired against Ammon and they killed him in his own house. But the people of the land struck down then all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land then made Josiah his son king in his place. So Josiah's father Ammon is this wicked guy, wicked king, honoring everything but God. And then he's killed by his, uh, by the people, I mean, by his, his own staff, basically. And then um, the people of the land went, ah! and they made Josiah king. He was only eight years old. Summary of 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Josiah was only eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned, it says, for 31 years. And as I already said, he was the last king of Judah who was declared to be right in the eyes of the Lord. He is also, the, he is also talked about as being walking in all the way of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So this eight-year-old kid becomes king. Then 18 years later, okay, he's still king. He turns 26 and Josiah orders that the temple be repaired. It had apparently been left to decay. It had been filled with idols of false gods. It had been defiled by sacrifices offered to those false gods. And that's Josiah, the boy who'd become king. What's the, the next, the last word before we get to King Jesus? Book of the law. And it has to do with Josiah. Bring up the next slide. During the repairs to the temple. Okay, these are the passages we're going to be looking at. During the repairs to the temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, who's cleaning out the temple, moving things around, getting rid of junk, taking out false idols, cleaning up from the sacrifices that were offered to them, trying to bring it back to order to the way it's supposed to be. All of a sudden, in a corner underneath a pile of junk, he finds his book. The high priest finds a book. The high priest takes the book to the secretary of the king. His name was Shaphan. Shaphan then takes the book to King Josiah. Now, Josiah is 26 years old. This is the first time Josiah has ever, ever seen this book because it was hidden under a pile of junk in the temple. But if you remember a number of months ago, when we started our study of King Saul, we talked about the fact that in Deuteronomy, it says that the king shall have for himself a copy of the book of the law and it shall be for him and him alone. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the commandments and all the laws and all the statutes and doing them. 
That's the law. And the king was supposed to have his own personal copy. If you remember, guys, after that copy was written, the prophet Samuel took it from Saul's presence and brought it back with him to the tabernacle. So that that book that was supposed to be Saul's was never in Saul's possession. It ended up in the tabernacle. And as it got moved and moved and moved and moved, then David brought it to Jerusalem and all of this. And then all of the hundreds of years later, all of these priests. So literally the whole stinking time there were kings in Israel. The book of Deuteronomy was being violated because the king did not have his own personal copy. It was stuck under a pile of junk in the corner at the tabernacle or the temple. But then it says, Shaphan, the secretary, reads the book in the presence of the king. And chapter, second, chapter, second Kings chapter 22, verses 11 through 13 says this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Anakam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan himself the secretary and another servant of the king named Asaiah. And he said to those men, you go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that has been written concerning us. So then continuing in verses 14 through 20, it says, Hilkiah and the other guys all went to a prophetess. And this is what she said to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon all the inhabitants. All the words of this book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, because you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place, against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse and have torn your clothes. And because you have wept before me, understand that I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. And they brought that word back to the king. Do you see the covenant of salt is still present? God said, if your kids don't obey me, there's going to be consequences. But I will never revoke. And so Josiah, who was a man after God's own heart, who followed the ways of his father, David, Josiah, who was the guy who wept and tore his clothes when he heard the word of God for the very first time in his life. And my question to us is, do you see the impact that the word of God has on the human heart? King Josiah had never read the Bible before in his life. He was 26 years old. And for 18 of those 26 years, he was the king. 
The book of law was required that he have his own personal copy so that he could read from it daily. And he didn't even know it existed. But as soon as it was brought into his presence and read to him, he was cut to the heart for the way that he and his people had been living. And he was remorseful and he was repentant. And as a result of that and his heart's response, God blessed him. If you look at 23, bring up the next slide, please, Craig. King Josiah did reforms. I don't have time this morning to read to you all of the reforms that he did. Just know that King Josiah literally went with that book and gathered all of the people of Judah. It says in the Bible, the small and the great were gathered together for this public gathering. And then he had the book read. No, it doesn't say that. It says the king himself read the book to the people. And then he said to them, things are going to change. And they went about, he went in front of them, leading them through all of the land of Judah, taking down every single high place. High places were where they worshipped the false gods. He literally went all over Judah, leading the crowd, clearing and cleaning and making everything pure and righteous because he loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And he wanted to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And it says in this in that passage of scripture, all the people joined in the covenant. In addition to that, King Josiah restored the Passover. And in the restoration of the Passover, it literally says, well, I don't know that it literally says this or if I just read it this way. There had not been a Passover like that in all the days of the kings. Can you imagine when they finally got their hearts right before God, the whole nation, and then they celebrate the Passover, which was the story of God bringing them out and God becoming their God? What an incredible, incredible, incredible celebration. Bring up the next slide. This is what Kings 23, 2 Kings 23, 25 says about King Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might. Nor did any like him arise after him. So now we've reached the end. But we have to connect this word book of the law with King Jesus to make the word, the chain of words game work. And the question is, can we and can what we do be supported by scripture? And my, my suggestion to you is yes. Bring up that next slide, Craig. That was the. No. It's the one that says the unbroken chain. And I just read that. So bring up the next slide, please. Matthew chapter five, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking in his Sermon on the Mount. And he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Bring up the next slide. 
if we took the time to read all 17 verses of the first chapter of Matthew, we would see that at chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 11, Josiah, one of the sons of David, is listed as an ancestor of Jesus. If we go to the next slide, where it's Acts chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. This is the cool thing. This, in all of the studies that I did, this is the cool thing that wraps it all up. Okay? So, King Saul rejected God. King Saul died as a result of his relationship with God. King David honored God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loved God, was known as a man who loved, who was a man after God's own heart. As a result of that, God made a covenant with David saying forever and forever and forever, because on my own holiness, I will never lie. And God made a covenant of salt with David, but David joined him in that covenant. And the end result is, generations afterwards, even though some of the guys didn't follow the rules, some of them did. And finally, near the very end of the line of the active kingdom, kingdom, there was King Josiah, who when he heard the word of God, he became all sold out 100% for God. He did absolutely everything he could to honor God in absolutely every way. And the book of the law was what did it. It was the thing that changed the hearts of the people. And Jesus said, I didn't come here to do away with the book of the law. I have come to fulfill it. And then he said, um, then we see that he is indeed part of the line of David. So we're seeing this covenant of salt coming to fruition. But, But what is this last thing in Acts? I have never, ever, ever, ever heard this in almost 50 years of Christian service. I have never heard this. And I was like dumbfounded when I came across it this week. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's important that you have those words in front of you when we're talking about this. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So that phrase, while staying with them, is the Greek word, sin, it's up at the top, I can't, I don't speak Greek. Sinalizomenos. Sinalizomenos. That has been translated while staying with them. However, other scholars have have argued that in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, the phrase while staying with them is actually better translated eating salt with them. (laughs) Eating salt together was a culturally a sign of entering into covenant with someone. Even enemies who shared salt together would be bound to come into each other's aid in times of battle. If you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 4 in the New International Version, it literally says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them. If you look in the Amplified Version of the Bible, it says, At one occasion, while they were gathered together and he, while he was staying with them and they ate a meal together. So there's various translations trying to come up with the best way to use this Greek word that I can't pronounce. But scholars will tell you it literally means eating salt with them. Here's a quote 
that I found online, and I'm just going to have to just read it. For correct understanding, the word menos is of great significance. Literally translated, it means eating salt with them. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, must have chosen the word quite deliberately. Yet what is it supposed to mean? In the Old Testament, the enjoyment of bread and salt, or of salt alone, served to establish lasting covenants. Salt is regarded as a guarantee of durability. It is a remedy against putrefaction. It is a, it is a remedy against the corruption that pertains to the nature of death. To eat is always to hold death at bay. It is a way of preserving life. The eating of salt by Jesus after the resurrection, which we therefore encounter as a sign of new and everlasting life, points to the Lord's new banquet with his followers. It has an inner association with the Last Supper when the Lord established the new covenant. So the mysterious cipher of eating salt expresses an inner bond between the Last Supper and the risen Lord's new table fellowship. He gives himself to his followers as food, thus makes them sharers in his life, in life itself. The Lord is drawing the disciples into a new covenant fellowship with him. He is giving them a share in the real life, making them truly alive and slating their lives through participation in his passion, the purifying power of his suffering. Now, that, that was a lot of words. I know that. I know that. Bring up the, le- the last slide, Craig. My conclusion from all of this is that King Jesus' reign is the fulfillment of God's covenant of salt with King David. And it is perpetual. It is durable. It is inviolable. And we know, if indeed this Acts chapter four translate, Acts chapter one translation is indeed eating salt, then it signifies this idea of Jesus joining together with his disciples in a covenantal relationship even after his death and resurrection that points to the ongoingness, if you will, the foreverness of the covenant of salt declared over David by God so many, 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 many years ago. I was blessed as I studied this. I mean, the idea, the idea that I get to eat today bread that's been prepared with salt, because I know there is salt in this bread. And it, to me, is a, a joining, if you will, of my heart with God's heart, saying, I am your follower, I am your child, I am your son. I want to be in covenant with you. I want your blessings. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I need you to make me more and more and more like Christ. I need to submit myself to be, to, for you to be my Lord. I have my hope in you. Someday I will be with you. All of those things wrapped up in eating a piece of bread and drinking some juice. Some juice. And I would bet there's probably some salt in that grape juice too. I don't know. I think they might put it. Not in the juice. Not in the juice? Okay. We'll have to see. But my point is this. My point is this. King Saul represents to us 
the person who focuses only on themselves. And the end result is death. The covenant that is offered to all of us is a covenant of life. But it requires obedience, submission, consecration, wholehearted devotion, being a people of the book in order to receive the blessings of the covenant of salt. And the last part of all of it is it's being offered to you right now by God. God is saying to you, I offer all of this to you right now. Will you join me in this covenant? Will you willingly give up your own whatever? Your right to your own self, your right to your own stuff, your right to your own volition and submit it to me and allow me to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But it doesn't happen until we enter into covenant. That's what this whole thing talks about. And so this morning, as a minister of the gospel, I offer to you the opportunity to confess your sins, to repent from your sins, to turn towards righteousness and to enter into covenant with the almighty. God is wooing you right now. You need to respond right now. Let's pray. Father God, woo, your goodness, your grace, your faithfulness, your love, your inviolable word, the fact that when you say something is going to happen, it happens. God, I give you praise and honor and glory. And I just ask, Lord, now that you would please bless us as we go into this time of communion and thankfulness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who's coming up?